This is exactly right. But I just think there's this um, beauty to fiction and being able to immerse a reader in character and story. And so you really get to know, you feel like you know these people. And I love the feeling just hearing readers talk about Ruth and Midnight, Mama and Eli, as if these, these were people they know, people in their own lives, in their neighborhoods. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for parents to seek the same in their own lives while striving to be the best versions of themselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is The Kindest Lie, Brave Conversations on Race with our guest, Nancy Johnson. Nancy is a native of Chicago's Southside and has worked more than a decade as an Emmy-nominated, award-winning television journalist at CBS and ABC affiliates in markets nationwide. Her debut novel, The Kindest Lie, has been reviewed by the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, and is featured on Entertainment Weekly's Must List. It was a New York Times editor's choice selection has been named one of the most anticipated books of 2021 by Newsweek, O, The Oprah Magazine, Shondaland, NBC News, Marie Claire, Elle, The Chicago Tribune, The New York Post, Good Housekeeping, Parade, Refinery29, and many, many, many more. There's so much more to say. This book has just been blown up, and you're going to find out why. Um, Nancy is a graduate of Northwestern University and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She lives downtown in downtown Chicago and manages brand communications for a large health care nonprofit. And this book, The Kindest Lie, is her first novel. Nancy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's good to be with you, Dan. So um, I have so much to ask you about. I, um, I, I was lost in your book for the last few days. And so I'm, I'm, I'm living it. I'm living the characters. And uh, before we dive into that complexity, um, we know that you are from Chicago's South Side. But tell us a little more about, about where you come from, your upbringing, and you know, what led you to be who you are today. Yeah, yeah. So I'm yeah from the south side of Chicago, born and raised. I'm an only child. Uh, my parents met during the civil rights movement uh, and had me. And so from an upper middle class uh, background, and uh, I was always reading uh, okay. as a kid and uh, spent a lot of time alone. And so I think that really helped with uh, creativity and imagination. And I don't know if you ever had one of those uh, memory books or these books where you uh, itemize, you know, what my favorite activity was, who my favorite teachers were, favorite activities when you were a kid mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. kindergarten on through 12th grade. And I was looking back at my memory book recently. And in kindergarten, my favorite activities were reading and writing. <laughs> <laughs> so I like mm-hmm. to say I've been writing since then. You started uh, early. So, yeah, started early and then uh, went on and studied journalism. So I always knew I wanted to do storytelling. And so mm-hmm. journalism was a natural fit. And so I did that for 11 years and covered a lot of really interesting stories, including the um, 
presidential recount uh, between Bush and Gore mm, mm. <laughs> back in the day. Back and in the so day, yeah. Was, uh, you know, kind of one of those big national, international stories that I covered. And uh, But it turned into, if it bleeds, it leads, we used to say in mm. news. And so mm. I got out of journalism and uh, moved into corporate communications and public relations. But then I got tired of telling the stories of other people mm. and promoting their stories and what they had to say. And I wanted to tell my own stories. And uh, so that's how I got into fiction. And and this piece of work, um, you know, we're going to set the stage soon. But I, I what what led you to? It? So in this book, you take on race, you take on class, mm-hmm. you take on injustice, you take on equality, um, forgiveness, um, and what I came to really see is, gosh, the complexity of not only at all, but a parenthood of motherhood in particular. Um, where did this all come from, this story? Yeah, well, it evolved over time. I initially wanted to write a story about race and class in America, and I was inspired by the events of 2008 with the election mm-hmm. of Obama mm-hmm. as president. And it was such a um, poignant time for me personally. Uh, my father was diagnosed with uh, stage four lung cancer in 2008. And I knew that things could be dicey. I didn't know what was going to happen, but I wanted him to vote early because I wasn't sure if he was going to be around by election date. Mm-hmm. So fortunately, he and my mother did vote early. And I remember October of 2008, uh, my father being in the hospital and the doctor saying, um, who's the president of the United States? Now they ask these kinds of questions just to see how lucid you are. Like what's the day of the week? What month are we in? So the doctor said, who's the president? And my father in this croaky voice said, Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. And the doctors laughed and said, not yet, not Mm -hmm. yet. Uh, So I I like to say that, you know, here's a man who survived and lived through World War II and the Great Depression and Jim Crow. And he got to cast the last vote of his life for America's first black president. Mm-hmm. So that was a meaningful time of hope mm-hmm. uh, for my family personally, even mm-hmm. though it was also bittersweet because my father died during that time. He died two weeks after that election, mm-hmm. but it was also this time of hope for many in the country. And at the same time, people were saying we are now post-racial as a country right. because we've elected our first black president. Mm-hmm. And I knew that was not the case. Right. And so I really wanted to interrogate that issue, but I didn't want to make it didactic. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I didn't, Mm-hmm. I want to make a treatise on race. And so I had to have a story and characters. And so I thought about the, these characters. I invented Ruth and Midnight, mm-hmm. um, this mm-hmm. black woman, successful engineer who walked away from the child she had to pursue her, you know, when she was a teenager, to pursue mm-hmm. her career, her education first at Yale and then her career in engineering. And then you've got her going back to her, her hometown to find her son. And then she meets Midnight, mm-hmm. this poor young white boy who is untethered and searching for a mother figure. And mm-hmm. so you have these two people who seemingly are so opposite, but yet they are seeking the same things. And that's mm-hmm. how they find each other and connect with each other. Mm-hmm. Bound by both of their losses and their struggles and each of their own secrets and um, coming together in ways that one would not expect as I, as I was like, preparing for this and you had, and I was going through the book and, you know, I was just, I, I was grabbed and, you know, wanting to like, how, how is this all going to come together? I was always, I was thinking about our talk today and it's like, okay, I have to just make sure 
I don't say too much because everyone, you have to read the book. There's like, there's, there's twists and turns, but those two characters, again, like you say, a black woman and a white boy, um, called midnight because of, um, you know, in a sense, wanting to be black, pretending to be black, um, having all black and brown friends, um, which he doesn't even under fully understand the ramifications. And, and I, I was really intrigued with that, you know, a comment about, you know, Africa, you know, I know that's someplace on the map and how, what you, what do we say about like insulation? So there's, there's lack of people generally all too often have a lack of knowledge about race and, and, um, there's been more of a conversation these days um, about race because of the number of um, tragedies which are becoming, you know, more and more in the news. Um, but this has been going on for so long. And then you have, so you have this kid who he doesn't really even understand because he's from such an impoverished, insulated place. That is so true. Um, you know, I had a conversation with um, a predominantly white book club about this very thing. So there is uh, this one scene that I can talk about at, at a convenience store uh, where Midnight, who's this white boy, who's 11 years old, he's with his friends who are black and brown boys, uh, one named Corey. And, you know, and like I said, they're black and brown and they get hassled by the manager of the convenience store. And Midnight, the white boy is not hassled in the same way, but he reacts like, you know, well, why didn't you just get in that guy's face and tell him you weren't doing anything. And, mm-hmm. you know, like, why didn't you uh, kind of talk back and stand up for yourself? You knew you weren't stealing anything in that store. Right. Uh, and Corey, the black, this black boy who's 11 responds by just saying, leave me alone. You know, you don't get it. There's this difference between how black boys and white boys are going to be treated in America. Mm-hmm. And when I had this discussion with a, an all white book club, they were very frustrated with Midnight's response. And they said, well, why wouldn't he get it? Why doesn't he understand Mm -hmm. that black boys are going to have a different experience and be treated differently uh, than they are? And so I said, well, what about you as white women? Mm -hmm. How many of you are having these conversations about race with your children? And Mm -hmm. they all had to admit that they're not having those conversations. And so I said, you and your children would be just as naive and just as insulated uh, as Midnight was. Mm-hmm. And, and that's part of what I wanted to show here, that mm-hmm. white parents don't have to have these kinds of conversations. You know, when a white parent thinks of the talk, it's, you know, the talk about sex. Right. It's not the talk right. about race. Right. But this is something that black parents are forced to have, mm-hmm. these conversations with their children, just to keep them alive. Right, right. Which... Um is something that most white people never, ever... So they don't have to consider. They don't even think about it as a conversation, which is why this is so important to have this conversation, this education. Um, And it has to start because most of these parents, white parents, didn't get that talk from their parents, right? So it has to start somewhere. Um, You you wrote something, you said something, which is in one of the articles, which really speaks to this, um, which is I wanted to show that the children are watching every single thing we do, what we say, and how we respond to racial differences. Mm, yeah, that, that's, that's it. I mean, they really are. I mean, and that goes to whether 
race and racism and as a construct, is that something that we are born with? Is it innate or is it something that's learned um, later in life? And I, and I think it is something that's learned. I think it's something that's with us and it's been with us for, mm-hmm. you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. And if you're white in America, you're benefiting from a right. system that has been in place mm-hmm. all this time. Right. Uh, and then, you know, and if you're black in America, you are also part of that system. We're all part of the same mm-hmm. system and the same construct, but our experiences of it are just so very different. And I don't think kids come into this knowing uh, all of this. They're not born into it, but they learn it so quickly. And you wonder how they learn it. It's not always that someone's sitting you down and explaining race to you, but you see it. It's in the Mm -hmm. media. It's in everything you consume. You see how people are being treated around you. And -hmm. you just have this natural understanding of it. Um, Just like that test that was done many years ago with showing kids the dolls, you know, which doll mm-hmm. do you choose, right. you know, black doll or the white doll. And, uh, and even a lot of, you know, black children also, in addition to white children, choose that white doll right. predominantly right. because they understand the stratification uh, in America. Mm-hmm. And, and Ruth, the main character, um, there's this paradox. Um, she, so it's the question of, you know, what does Ruth think about race um, as a as a black woman who got out of her poor town um, where she's not giving money to a black panhandler. She's giving money to a white family who's lost a child. Right. There's a few different examples of like going away from black, going towards white. And then I, I what is so what is your purposeful you know, creation of that, that, that represents. I'm glad that you um, pointed that out. I think it's, um, it's something that was very intentional about that. None of this is a straight line. Mm -hmm. And that when you're black in America, you you can be very pro black and very proud of being black, but you're also impacted by a world that celebrates whiteness Mm -hmm. and that gets into your psyche, whether you like it or not. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I had, you know, Ruth, um, there's this one scene where she's in her old her old neighborhood in Ganton, Indiana, small small town, factory town where the factory is just closed, and she sees a group of um, black guys kind of jostling in the street, and she doesn't really know what's happening, and she instinctively clicks the locks on her door, and that's something when I wrote that I kept thinking, God, do I want to put that in the book? Mm. Because it's not it you know it, it's not the I think so much about representation as a black author. Mm -hmm. And I want to represent the best of who we are as Black people in Mm -hmm. America. And we are definitely a very proud people. Um, But I thought that's still realistic for some people to do that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. That that there's something, that there's this anti-Blackness and this fear of your own people Mm -hmm. that gets in your head sometimes. And and that's real as well. And I didn't want this book to be one where I sugarcoat anything. I want mm-hmm. everybody to be complex, you know, just because you're black, you're not, yeah. there's not one experience of what it means to be black. And that's the other thing I wanted to say with Ruth in terms of race and class. She's now this successful Ivy league educated engineer, great home and all this in Chicago. Yet she and her husband are still sitting in the L on the L train in Chicago, rigid with fear when this white cop is hassling a young black boy who's mm-hmm. just drumming. Right. Her tips, right? You know, and then she's on her job as an engineer and not getting the promotions that she believes she deserves. 
Uh, so both can be true. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. That, she, that just because you have a certain degree of success doesn't inoculate you from racism in America. No, no. Um, so mission accomplished on creating complex characters. There's not one character. There's several characters that you, uh, you all will come to know when you read this wonderful novel and they're all complex. And, um, as a psychologist, I greatly appreciate how you describe the complexity of each individual, of where they came from, where they, their position hierarchy in the family, their obligation. Um, it all, it all came together to show what a beautiful mess being human is, in a sense. I love what you said about the hierarchy of the family. It just made me think of there's this scene where Ruth, the main character, goes home to her hometown and she's eating her first dinner back home after all these years with her grandmother who raised her and her brother, Eli. And there's this bit of a squabble over who gets the biggest piece of chicken (laughs) at dinner. And uh, I think that just speaks to family. And Mm -hmm. no matter what age you are, how old you are, you know, when you go home again, yeah. There's still those same dynamics. There's mm-hmm. this sibling rivalry that's still mm-hmm. there. And you're still jockeying for position in the family, mm-hmm. uh, no matter how many years it's been or how old you are. My experience as well. That's, uh, that's the way it works. Um, so you wrote, I also read that you wrote, initially you wrote, you were thinking of writing this book for, um, for, for black and brown people to express their experience. And then over time, you were thinking, wait, wait, white people and other people, you, you want them to, to get this message too, which um, one of the reasons you chose fiction to tell a different type of story, uh, because there are so many other books out there. I know that um, I've been reading a lot of them over the last few years, and they have really impacted me. And it really spoke to me when you when you said, you know, those those books get one audience and tell one side of the story per, uh, in a particular way. You wanted to help these characters come to life in a different way, so the reader might have a different experience, or even bring on different readers. Mm-hmm, definitely. Uh, there have been several iterations of The Kindest Lie in my time of writing it, as you can imagine, mm-hmm. over uh, the six years it took me to write the book. And initially, when I wrote it, Midnight, the the poor 11-year-old white boy was Black at mm-hmm. first, mm-hmm. in my first version of it. So it was a very similar story, but mm-hmm. it was Black. And then I had the idea, I want to change that and make him a white boy, mm-hmm. because then I can explore more fully this divide between black and white America that I was mm-hmm. trying to understand. Uh, and that was really the impetus for writing the book. So it made him white. And then in doing that, it opens up the world of his family mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And so it just made the story richer and broader by bringing in more characters. And I was able, better able to tell the story by mm-hmm. having this black family and this white family, both of them trying to do the best they can with what they've got mm-hmm. and pursuing the American dream. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but like you said, last year with the murder of George Floyd, you had so many in white America who were doing their anti-racism reading. Mm-hmm. And I would just look at this curriculum, if you will, right. uh, for white America. And I think that was good. I mean, it's great to be reading all of those nonfiction books about race. 
But quite often when people read those, you get defensive. You mm-hmm. can feel that you're being preached to mm-hmm. uh, and given mm-hmm. a certain narrative. Quite often people you know, think a lot of the books are very political in mm-hmm. nature in terms mm-hmm. of the way they're written. But I just think there's this um, beauty to fiction and being able to immerse a reader in character and story. Mm-hmm. And so you really get to know, you feel like you know these people. And I love the feeling uh, as a first-time novelist of just hearing readers talk about Ruth and Midnight and Mama and Eli as if these, these were people they know, people mm-hmm. in their own lives, in their neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. So that's the beauty of it. Mm-hmm. And, okay, I've got two, two things going on in my mind now. Um, all right, I'm going to pick one and try to get back to the other. So I want first go back to what you were talking about with Midnight and then Corey, uh, Midnight's friend. And, you know, making Midnight white, uh, as I just learned. So you have Midnight who comes from um, also being raised by a uh, grandmother, tragedy in his life, loss in his life, father struggling. Um, and then, so white, and then you have Corey Black, raised by two parents who uh, parents seem to be, um, well, professional. I don't know if we call it upper middle class in that town, but definitely on the higher end of that town. And so there's this intersection of race and socioeconomic. Um, you know, how, so how, how do you see those trajectories, you know, not just for those characters, but, you know, what it represents in America? Yeah I, yeah, I was very purposeful about constantly looking at ways to explore race and class. And so I was doing with Ruth and Midnight, but also with Midnight and Corey, too. And also, I'm interested in flipping the script, too. Yep. That's part of yep. what I want to do. I mean, because most people have this perception of the um, poor Black kid who needs saving um, mm-hmm. by the more affluent white woman, mm-hmm. you know, similar to the blind side. Yeah. Uh, but I wanted to show the opposite relationship of this poor white kid, Midnight, who is really looking for saving and for mother mothering from a more affluent black woman. And he's friends with a black boy who is in a two-parent household, um, parents who love him, giving him the, the very best that they have. And they're very solidly uh, middle class. And I think quite often when you get outside of the black community that many have misconceptions about uh, what it means to be black in America. There are many ways to be black. Um, You have black people living in poverty, but you also have black people who are um, very successful, who are middle-class and upper middle-class. And uh, like me, you know, I come from a middle-class two-parent household. You know, when I tell people, when I speak and I talk about being from the South side of Chicago, I sometimes get white audiences uh, looking at me in surprise when I say that I'm, mm-hmm. you know, was middle class, and I said I didn't have to dodge any bullets uh, mm-hmm. growing up, mm-hmm. you know, and um, so I just think there's a lot of again misconceptions, and I wanted to shatter those uh, in fiction. You did, you did, good, yes. Um, so I was thinking about timelines as I was reading your book, and you just mentioned George Floyd, um, and so. You know, George Floyd was murdered on May 25th, 2020. And your book came out in February of 2021. I was wondering and imagining 
and 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 uh, the other thing I just want to say, you know, George Floyd gets all is got gotten most of the press, and um, where the the BLM movement really came, went to another level. Um, but we also need to talk about all of the other murders and all the other names um, that have been in the media and have not been in the media. Um, how did that movement? I mean, you're in the you're in the midst of I imagine revising your book um, during all this. Yeah. So actually, when all that happened, um, I was kind of in the tail end of that. I'd really almost been really, you know, I think was finishing the the copy edits and all that for my book. And so, so many people thought that I wrote this book in response to mm-hmm. uh, what had happened uh, with George Floyd and um, Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna mm-hmm. Taylor. And you're so right. We need to say their names over and over again and not forget. Um, and there are so many names we don't even know. Mm-hmm. Um, that just we just will never know about only certain ones, and also people thought it was a response to the Trump era and uh, what had happened in that administration. But a lot of people don't know it takes a long time for to yes, bring a, a book to life. It's yeah. you know about an eighteen month process. And I started writing the Kindest Lie in twenty thirteen, mm-hmm. even though I was always thinking back to two thousand and eight. Mm-hmm. But there are so many parallels, you know, and my book just feels very timely. And I think because of the racial um, violence or the threat of racial violence that you see um, in my novel uh, and also, you know, just the time period, it just feels like it could have been set in 2021 mm-hmm. in so many ways. Mm-hmm. But there are so many parallels. And you look at 2008, we were electing uh, what some people look to as a political savior in Barack Obama. Then in 2020, you know, we elected uh, Joe Biden as president and then Kamala Harris as vice president, you know, her being black and South Asian, we made history Mm -hmm. uh, with that election Mm -hmm. in 2008. We made history by electing Mm -hmm. our first black president and also the economic strain too. I mean, in 2008, we were going through the great recession Mm -hmm. and that's a big part of my novel, the kindest lie, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and it's a time when, so much, so many factories and plants were shutting down. And we were just in this time of, excuse me, we were in this time of just such economic strain and that just exacerbated racial tensions that were already there. And so then we parallel that to where we are now, having gone through the global pandemic and so many people losing their livelihoods. So there's just so many ways that my novel that I set you know, so many years ago in 2008 is so prescient right now. The question is how much has really changed because another um, statement I saw in one of the interviews was um, this was back, I believe it was, it was during um George Floyd and um, the protests and someone had asked you about, you know, are we really are, are, is this the beginning of real change? And you made a comment, which is like, well, maybe, but you know, usually people go, but kind of, usually people kind of go back to the way they were after the, the hype is over. Uh, I'm paraphrasing here, true. right? No, but, no, um, I, I think so. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely agree with that. And I mean, you look at the election um, of Obama and two terms of Obama and what was the response to that? It was the mm-hmm. era of Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I just think we, it's cyclical and we're just going to keep going back and forth. 
you know, we, we move forward a few steps and then we regress, move mm-hmm. forward and regress. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just the way it is. I don't know if there's an answer to that, but I, I think we're, we're getting better with time. Um, but as we get better, it exposes more, you know what I mean? It, it yeah. exposes, um, yeah, just more of that, um, the ugliness, mm-hmm. the ugly underbelly of, <laughs> of who we are. It's always been there. Yeah. But I think as we start to, to advance, there are people always going to be people who don't want to see us make those advances. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You said if we can talk about what separates us and holds us back, we can fix it. We can be better. Mm-hmm. So let's talk more about how we, I mean, we've talked about a few things about, you know, parents talking to their kids about race, helping them understand race and the implications of race and the implications of being black or brown or being white and the privilege that goes with that. What are the ways, what are the ways that we can fix this and be better from your experience? Yeah, I do think talking about it makes a difference. Um, There's so much that we don't talk about. We know it's there, but we don't acknowledge it. We don't have open conversations about it. Uh, you mentioned in my bio that I'm um, lead brand communications for a large nonprofit, uh, healthcare nonprofit in Chicago, and that's true. But in the last year and a half, I was asked to also, in addition to my normal daily duties, <laughs> co-lead diversity, equity, and inclusion oh, yeah. uh, with a Puerto Rican um, male colleague of mine. And so that's like having another job. And so that has brought to light a lot of these issues too, mm-hmm. of what we talk about, what we don't talk about. Mm-hmm. And I have plenty of coworkers who say, the fact that you're trying to talk about race is racist, <laughs> that you're making the racial divide worse by right. talking about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's you know so far from the truth. Mm-hmm. And it's really a way to say, let's not have the conversation. And if we don't have the conversation, we can pretend that it doesn't exist and we can continue doing things as we've been doing them mm-hmm. uh, and continue perpetrating racial harm. Um, but I do think that opening it up and having a, an honest conversation is important, but also giving people space to learn and to grow. You know right. what I mean? Like right. Not saying you're wrong. And I think that's the thing. People are afraid of being labeled. Mm-hmm. And so that's what, like when we talked about some of the, the books that people were reading, the nonfiction, some people yes. are, are, they feel like I'm being labeled. I'm being called out here as a racist. Right. right. And um, it's not about calling people out. It's about calling people in mm. and, um, and just having the conversation and helping them to understand, hearing their perspective and letting them hear mine. And that's the beauty of the kindest lie. And that's why I wrote it. I wanted to have, I wanted people to have meaningful conversations. Mm-hmm. And for some, it's the first time they've really had these discussions. Uh, I know I would have been uncomfortable before I wrote this book, having some of those conversations. Mm -hmm. So now when I go into white book clubs and we talk about these things, it's starting to feel more comfortable Mm -hmm. and people are opening up and they're sharing their own experiences and Mm -hmm. talking about their parents and the difficult conversations they've been having with their elderly parents now, Mm -hmm. things that they never talked about when they were kids because they weren't having the talk. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, So now they're having the talk as adults with their older parents. Yeah. Yeah. And you're so, I mean, you, you're so right. Um, and having read some of those other books, which are excellent and, um, opening, and I want to say piercing, you know, at times they're piercing, um, in terms of like, whoa, um, and the awarenesses personally that I had reading them. 
it is a, it was a different experience reading your novel because um, you got to see these characters play out the well these characters who became people play out these different roles and these different ways of thinking and it was then oh well Butch thinks like this and Dale thinks like this and it's it's on them and you're sort you have this like arm's length to be able to not be threatened perhaps mm-hmm. by any of where it touches home, which I think does threaten people and shuts people down and puts people on edge and a bit defensive, not a bit defensive when it comes to these conversations. Yeah, definitely. I think that's definitely it. It's, it's just an easier way to, to get to the same kinds of messages, but mm-hmm. to just do it through character and story. It's mm-hmm. um, people are more receptive to it. Mm-hmm. So um, friends and having these conversations, um, you also wrote recently about your friendship with uh, Julie. And so if you could tell everyone about this, because you also took on as, you know, as close as you guys are, we're still just being white and being black. You're going to hit some um, unknown biases without any intention that still need to be discussed and brought forth. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Julie Carrick Dalton is the author of um, Waiting for the Night Song, another debut novel that came out this year. She's a white author. We met at a writing workshop uh, many years ago and became fast friends. And I wrote about our friendship uh, in an essay that appeared earlier this year in Real Simple magazine. So it's called Friendship in Black and White. So be sure to check that out. Uh, It's a February issue, I believe, of Real Simple Mm -hmm, magazine. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I just wanted to explore some of the things that she and I had not really, hadn't always addressed directly about uh, our friendship. And as close as we are as friends, there are just some things that she doesn't understand about my experience as a Black woman. And she wouldn't understand those things unless I was honest with her to talk to her about them. Mm-hmm. And I think I wanted to explore that it takes time and trust built up over mm-hmm. a period of time to get to that point. But there were just examples. I mean, some small things and larger things. I mean, I'd say one of the bigger things uh, was we were both part of an organization um, where we both had some issues. There were some issues about how race was handled in this organization. And we both chose to leave actually. And I felt that, the organization was more um, interested in hearing what she had to say as Mm -hmm. a white woman. When she expressed her concerns, it it was more palatable for them than me talking to them uh, about the very same issues, but from my perspective as a black woman. And so in the beginning, Julie thought, no, I don't think so. I I think I'm sure they wouldn't have treated you any differently because that's just because she is assuming the best in people, Mm -hmm. which Mm -hmm. we all often do. Mm -hmm. But You know, I had to explain to her, I see it differently Mm -hmm. as a black woman. Mm -hmm. I believe that I was treated differently. And a lot of times it's about not just about intent, but it's about impact. Mm -hmm. And this was the impact on me. Mm -hmm. And then once I explained it to her, she totally got it and understood it and empathized. And then on a more seemingly smaller scale, we were both leaving a um, party uh, at this um, beautiful home in Boston we were at a conference, but we were leaving a home and we were going back to our hotel and it was raining and uh, we left the, the home and Julie's just kind of skipping along with her long red hair. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and so I'm trailing a few feet behind and I thought we should maybe get a cab 
But she's mm-hmm. like, oh, no, you know, it's only, you know, however many blocks or whatever, or miles. And she's a nature person. person. Yeah, she's right, really right. an outdoors person. Yeah. So that's part of it, too. But I'm sitting there thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm black. I have black hair. The texture of black hair is different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so my hair is going to be all drawn up and, you know, mm-hmm. going to be really unwieldy uh, walking in the rain. Mm-hmm. But she wouldn't have thought that. And at the time, I didn't have the courage to speak my truth in that moment. Mm -hmm. Um, But those are the kinds of things that we have to navigate in these cross-racial friendships. Mm -hmm. It's worth it, I think, Mm -hmm. in navigating these things. Because we're never going to get anywhere if we're always in our own silos and bubbles and and not having these conversations. So two questions about that. Was it hard in in those especially the first situation i don't know how long before you brought that up with the organization was it hard to do that um because of a discomfort or concern about the relationship or being misunderstood that's one one part of the question the second part is does it feel like it's always on you <laughs> uh good questions especially that second one is tough <laughs> mm-hmm. uh yeah the in answer to your first question, it took me a while to bring it up to her, but I did bring up the situation with the organization and how I felt about it later on. But I felt nervous about it uh, because sometimes you don't want to always broach what's different about you when you're in a friendship. You don't want to. You don't want to look like you're 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 playing the victim, or that you're mm-hmm. always playing the race card, and that everything mm-hmm. is about race, even though a lot is about race in mm-hmm. America. Uh, and she's very sensitive to these issues. So in that sense, it wasn't as difficult bringing it up to her as it would have been to somebody who doesn't understand race in America. She's mm-hmm. definitely understands it and, and, um, and empathizes with, um, mm-hmm. with this. So, but it was still hard to have the conversation, especially when she didn't see what I saw, mm-hmm. you know? And so to it, because then you feel like I'm not seen. Right. When someone can't really see your point of view and understand how you could have been treated differently in that situation. So, yeah, it was very difficult um, to broach it and to bring it up. So mm-hmm. probably more difficult to have that conversation than it would have been to have the conversation about rain. Yeah. But, the, but even so in the rain, it's right. like, OK, we're out here in the rain. Is this the time that you want to bring up a conversation about hair texture? Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Um, so it, it's always challenging. But I think after the fact, if you know, to have that conversation to sit down and again to have that trust, uh, it's important. Uh, I, I do think it's always uh, or often on me yeah. uh, in cross racial friendships to mm-hmm. be the one to have the conversation because the other person is just going on with life and they have no idea what you're experiencing and what you're feeling. And so that's come up other times where I've thought, huh, I wonder if she sees this. I don't think she sees this. Or if, or with that string of people who were murdered, you know, the all these black and brown people who've been murdered, you know, at the hands of police, uh, you know, she and I have talked about some of those instances. But with other friends who are white, sometimes it never comes up. And mm-hmm. it always bothers me because I think, huh, why hasn't this person brought this up to me? Why don't they mm-hmm. think this is important enough mm-hmm. to have a conversation about? Or in social media, why are they still posting about, you know, gardening or this trip they just took when Brianna Taylor's just been gunned down. Mm-hmm. You know, those kinds of yeah. things that happen mm-hmm. all the time. And it's just really difficult to carry it, to carry that weight, to carry that burden 
mm-hmm. seemingly alone. What is one thing, you know, for our listeners listening, like what's one thing you suggest that they do? And even as I'm saying this, it depends on what color they are. <laughs> this is a complicated question, right? So I'm going to say it, you, and please answer it as, as you see fit. Like, what, is, what can we do to continue to take steps to be better uh, towards awareness, racial equality, um, awareness of racism, awareness of privilege, awareness of the systematic infrastructure that has been a part of our country for so long, what can we do? That is a big question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I wish I had the, the real answer to it. Uh, from my perspective, I would recommend that people get to know someone whose life experience is different from their own. That's the first step. Get to know someone different from you. And try to walk in their shoes as best you can, acknowledging what you don't know, being very honest that I don't know, I don't understand, but taking the steps to really get to know them Mm. and to really understand them as people, not as stereotypes, Mm -hmm. um, but as real people Mm -hmm. and have meaningful conversation with them. Yeah. Yeah. And that just reminded me of, um, one of the characters in the book saying that, uh, you know, I believe it was their daddy always said, or their granddaddy always said that everyone bleeds the same. Yeah. It's so true. We Mm -hmm. do. Mm -hmm. We all bleed the same. However, we do have different experiences in America. That's important as well to know and to understand and to recognize. Yes. Because we don't want to be colorblind Mm -hmm. as Melody Hobson, um, famous Melody Hobson said, she's, a financial guru, and she said, "Don't be color blind; be color brave." Mm. Color brave. Mm-hmm. All right, that's something we can all remember. Be color yeah. brave. It's time for the parent footprint moment question. Okay, Nancy, tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, as a person, or an awareness of your parents. And that new awareness had a positive impact on yourself, those you love, and your life. Hmm. Well, I'll give you as background. I was bullied a lot as a child. I wrote about that experience in Oh, the Oprah magazine in an essay, November 2015. I wrote about it. So, you know, second, third grade, I was teased a lot for being too tall and too smart. I had an afro at the time. Uh, You name it. uh, I was teased for it, beat up on the playground a lot for mm. it. And I used to be the kid in class who was always saying, me, 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 you know, calling <laughs> yeah. me, waving yeah. my hand in the air. And slowly over time, that confidence was eroded and I shut down and I figuratively lost my voice. Uh, so that was a difficult experience. Uh, and then when I went on to high school, I had this teacher, uh, Mr. Donald Necrocious, who was my high school English teacher, taught me advanced composition and literature And I just remember after class one day, he kept me after class. I was the only student in the room. And he said to me, he said, you're so quiet. You're not saying anything. He said, there's so much going on in that head of yours. You need to get it out. The world needs to hear 
what you have to say. Mm. And so that was a light bulb moment. I didn't change overnight after hearing him say that. But I know that was always in the back of my head over the years that even though I had been, you know, knocked down and silenced in many ways uh, as a kid, just because of the, you know, bullying in school, I did have something worthwhile to say. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we talk about parenting, I have the best parents in the world, um, but it takes a village. And yeah. Mr. Necrocious was part of my village. And him telling me there was something worthwhile that I had to say helped me later on to really believe it. Mm-hmm. And I believe that that's why you have the kindest lie now mm-hmm. and why people can read it because I finally have accepted that I do have something valuable to mm-hmm. say in the world. And now I'm saying it. Thank you for sharing and uh, very glad you are saying it. Um, and uh, it does take it does take a village and the whole idea of, quote, I'm putting parenting in air quotes. It takes a lot of people, like you said, to raise, to raise people. And it is these other members, often beyond parents, that are so instrumental um, in our lives. And, uh, and he helped you or reminded you of the power of your voice. Yes, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for thank you for sharing today. Thank you for your book. Um, I uh, again, I personally uh, really enjoyed it. Learned a lot. I recommend it to everyone listening um, to be on a journey, a journey of several human beings um, searching, searching and finding, along with learning a lot about America, um, about race, about class, uh, and about the burdens that and the secrets that many bear uh, and live with. Well, thank you for having me and thank you for reading The Kindest Lie. Tell us where, well, tell us, is there another one? Was there another one in the works and where can people find out about you and what you're doing? Yeah, well, you can find out about The Kindest Lie on my website, nancyjohnson.net. And The Kindest Lie is available everywhere. Books are sold. I encourage you to Um, buy it from your local independent bookstore. We need to keep our independent bookstores going and thriving. Uh, So I definitely encourage you to read it and um, reach out to me too online and let me know what you think about it. Uh, And I'm on Facebook and Twitter and all those, you know, uh, Nancy J author uh, on there and on Instagram as well. So you can always find me there. And yes, I am working on a new book. I have a Second novel uh, also will be with William Morrow, Harper Collins. It's called nice. People of Means. And mm. so that one will be coming your way, hopefully in May of 2023. Dual timeline, historical fiction about an upper mm. middle class, black mother and daughter dealing with issues of love, ambition, and resistance at different moments of racial reckoning in the country. Awesome. Okay. Yeah. We're going to look forward <laughs> to that. To look forward to. I'll yes. have to come back on yes. to talk okay. about that. All right, yes. we're 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 uh, you're penciled in. We're gonna do that. Okay, good, yeah. good. Well, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Nancy, and uh, everyone. Let's be color brave, right? Let's do our best. Let's have the conversations. Let's keep talking, and let's all continue to try to do better. Yes. All right. All right, everyone. That concludes our show. Please share this with others that you think and know will benefit. We love having you part of our our community. 
try to be that person you want that child and that person you care for to become. And as always, ask yourself the guiding question, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by Pro Tunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com forward slash ads. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.